Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. It's now time for A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. From amazing stories to colorful personalities, join us as we go in-depth with the men and women that make up the Oakland Athletics Organization. It all starts right now. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. want to thank everybody who's been listening to A's cast and making us the number one podcast in all of baseball. It means a lot to us that you guys are really into this, and we're trying to provide you with the best possible content we can covering your Oakland athletics. And thank you to everybody who's been listening to Ace Cast Live, our live talk show that is here on Ace Cast. And we do it uh, before A's games, and when there aren't A's games, we're on from 4 to 7. And we got a lot of good guests, and we know that not everybody can listen live. So, In case you miss it, don't worry. We put all of it here on A's Unfiltered. And on today's show, you're going to hear from Jose Canseco, Kevin Mitchell, Barry Zito, and Dave Fleming, broadcaster for the Giants and ESPN. Always love catching up with Jose Canseco. He was one of my favorite players of all time. And I've got to do a lot of stuff with Jose. When his documentary came out, I got to host it in Concord at the movie theater. Got to spend a lot of time with Jose. I really like him a lot. Six-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion, American League Rookie of the Year in 1986, American League MVP in 1988, four-time Silver Slugger Award winner, two-time Major League Baseball home run champ, and also led the league in RBIs in 1988. Always good catching up with Jose Canseco, because you can talk about anything with Jose. He's the best. Here is the big slugger. Jose, how you doing? It's Chris Townsend with the Oakland Athletics. Thank you for coming on. Good. Great to be here. Stop saying good things about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you know, I'm not used to that. <laughs> n- n- hey, when we did that, when we when we did that event in Concord, it, it just showed all those A's fans how no matter what people say, A's fans absolutely love you. They will always love you. Well, I, I think it was just a very interesting era in baseball. I think eras evolved and changed, and, and it's you know been modified. And you know, you had, of course, you know the the the, the high mound era. You had the lack of home run era. You had the home run era. You had the uh, the juice ball era, whatever. But I, I think you know baseball is the greatest game in the world, and baseball has survived everything. And 
you know, 100 years, 200 years down the line, baseball will be thriving even more than what it is today. It's just the greatest game in the world. You know, I think about your career, and, and my, my producer was born in 1988, and I'm trying to tell these kids that in the 80s and the 90s, you know, we talk about players, how people don't really know the players today. You were a rock star back in the day. What was it like for Jose Canseco to go out on the road with the A's? You know, it was pretty interesting. Some other uh, writers wrote that, I guess, when we walked into either restaurants or nightclubs and even, I'm an honest guy, some strip clubs at times. Yeah, we were very well noted. We were the Oakland A's. We were the Bash Brothers. And, you know, we, we did things that other organizations weren't doing back then. I, I think at that time we had so many different characters, so many different identities, and so many rock stars and superstars on our team. It was just amazing. And you know what? We had a lot of great characters, a lot of great chemistry, and we won games in a certain way that other teams weren't doing it. Have you seen the Bash Brothers thing on Netflix that they've put together? <laughs> yes, actually, I saw it. I actually loved it. I, I thought it was a great kind of spoof. I thought it was hilarious. I thought at times they were pretty accurate. At times they were over the top. But, you know, it kind of made fun about an era that actually happened. So it was all in great fun. I actually went on tour with the Lonely Island uh, the last two days of their tour schedule and actually appeared with them and acted like I was go I was stalking them. I was going to hit them with a baseball bat. And I said, okay, guys, you know, if, if you're going to make fun of me, at least let me show you how to do it the right way. We had a lot of fun with it. They yeah. were a, a bunch of great guys. Yeah, Andy Sandberg for uh, SNL. Yeah. He did. It, it, it was. It was. We've had a lot of fun with it. I can tell you, as A's fans, we've had a lot of fun. And you know, we're celebrating. Are, are you showing up for the uh, the event to celebrate 1989? We're working on it right now. We're looking at the schedule, see if I can make it. Yeah, I, I think whenever you guys get together, what a special team that was. You guys just had so much firepower. You had the great pitching. You had the you had the great bullpen. Just talk about what it was like to be on that team. You know, it's ironic because it was very. It was a. Uh, you know, we had great talent, and our chemistry was amazing. We had the veteran leadership. I mean, we had the offense. We had we had the uh, defense. We had Ricky who at will can, can still base. We had the Bass brothers. I mean, we had a huge supporting role. We had Dennis Eckley, Dave Stewart. We had so many great guys, so many great characters. And I, I think at that time, not only did we have a great team, we had a fundamentally sound team. We had the best manager in baseball, Tony LaRouche at the time, but we had a very entertaining team. We had a team that people knew about. We had certain different characters. And I tell you, La Russa did a great job, not just, you know, putting these guys on the field, making that lineup, but making sure that we we worked well together as, as teammates. Yeah, we just had the Hall of Famer Tony La Russa on this program. And, it, you know, it's funny. He, he to this day, he says it still bothers him to this day that you guys only won one World Series. That's what he said on this show. I agree. I agree with him 100%. We had... I think at the time, the best well-rounded ball club in baseball. But, you know, I, I think people have to understand this, and that's why they, the, uh, the odds makers aren't always correct. I've always said this. It's not the best team that wins in a seven-game series. It's the team that plays the best that's going to win in that seven-game series. You know, all these teams we actually played against, take the, uh, uh, the Dodgers. I mean, they beat us in a seven-game series. They just basically outplayed us. 
that's what they did. But if we were playing in a series of 50 games, I think we would win 40 of those 50 games. But I don't know. Uh, everything, I mean, they had Hershiser. Uh, everything they did was just perfect. They had guys hitting home runs that should not have been hitting home runs. Of course, they had Hershiser that, that, that would shut us down. Um, they had great defense. They just basically outplayed us. You know, and I think about 1988, your MVP year, and when you were you became the first guy to go 40-40. You know, there's been other people to go 40-40, but you went 40-40 in a year where your team was winning and going to the World Series. We've seen we've seen other guys do it when their teams were terrible and it didn't matter. Well, I I think the main difference was that at that time no one had done the 40-40. And at that time, I actually came in the spring training saying that I was going to do the 40-40 that year. Almost think that I think I put my foot in my mouth because, you know, I didn't really realize that no one had done the 40-40 before. I thought it was something difficult to do, but I thought it had been done before. So at that point in time, when I said I was going to do in spring, you know, spring training, I was going to do the 40-40, I thought, oh, my God, either I, I <laughs> you know, Either I'm going to do the 40-40 and maybe win the MVP and get rated one of the best players in the world or look like the uh, the uh, GOAT, but everything turned out perfect. Well, you all, you promised your mother that you were going to be the best player in baseball, and you became that. And you mentioned Tony La Russa. What was it like playing for him? I'll tell you, um, the most intense manager I've ever played with, I played with seven, eight other, other ball clubs, seven, eight other managers, of course, but – the most well-prepared, the most intense guy. Um, he was constantly trying to figure out how to outmaneuver the other team. I mean, he was an attorney. I, I, I guess he played great, great chess also. But, it, you know, w- when you're talking about getting to that ballpark, I, I think Larusa was so intense. I don't think I ever saw him smile, to be honest with you, when it came to being on that field because he was trying in every angle possible, every which way, to really, you know, acquire us an, an edge to win that game. So in that sense, what a great manager, a Hall of Fame manager, as a matter of fact. You know, the documentary w- was so good, and it just showed how you got blackballed in baseball. You know, when, when everybody was trying to deny PEDs and you came out and you actually told the truth, ha- has life changed for you since that documentary that now more people know that so many people were lying and you weren't? Well, it's changed completely around. In the, in the very beginning, of course, I was called a liar, a snitch, uh, that I had destroyed Major League Baseball. But uh, years and years have passed, and I, I, you know, the book came out, and people really analyzed the total situation, the environment we were in, and of course, now they realize, yeah, that was something that happened at the point of total steroid use in Major League Baseball. I mean, at the peak, yeah, probably eighty percent of the players were using it. You know what, but I think people have to understand this, that when that era started, you know, PDs were not illegal in Major League Baseball. We really didn't even know exactly what they were and exactly what they did. But till Major League Baseball instilled the, um, the fines and the, and the game suspensions in Major League Baseball, I mean, PDs were not illegal. That, that happened l- later on. So we have testing today. How 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 put a percentage on it? What you think probably players are using today? I would say zero. I would say that it's not worth it. I mean, you got these huge fines, you got these huge suspensions, and I don't really think pe- these players need these these PEDs. I, I think PEDs, 
you know, they were just, they were just given too much credit. It's, it's almost saying that if none of these, if all these players that use PD, you're going to tell me they would never be in, in the major leagues. For example, let's take for example, I'm going to give you two perfect examples of why PDs are overrated. Number one, Mark McGuire. In 1987, he was not using PDs. He hit 49 home runs. And back then, the ballpark rated where the ball carried the, the least. It was a dungeon. We had the biggest foul territory. If you would have put him in Colorado, he probably would have hit 70 home runs. Now, I have an identical twin brother. Him and I used the identical PDs. We did the same workouts. We, we ate the same foods and, and took the same nutrition. Why didn't he make it to the major leagues and, and do the 40-40 and hit monsters home runs? That just goes to show you, PDs are completely overrated. I hate these people that are saying, oh, you know what? I could have made it to the major leagues. I would have just injected myself. I would have been a major league superstar. <laughs> That's, so from, That's so far from the truth. It's laughable. And guys who get caught now, their excuse is always, it was a, you know, I bought this. I bought this from wherever, and it's, it, it was tainted. Do you buy that excuse when they say it's uh, tainted and they get t- when they test positive? Well, you have to look at both sides of the coins. The, the problem is that there are so many substances out there out in the market that will give a false positive when you, when you take these PD testing. There are so many uh, supplements. There are so many, uh, uh, you know, vitamins. There, 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 there are so many things out there that it could work. I, I think players just have to look at that player uniform list and look at these so-called items that could not be used at all, and they have to be extremely careful with them. Jose, it is always great to catch up with you. I truly appreciate the time, and I know all A's fans would love to see you for the celebration for 1989. Thank you, guys. Hopefully I can make it. I appreciate it. We all love Jose. Come on, as A's fans, Jose's the best, and he was a rock star. Unfortunately, he wasn't here for the 1989 celebration, but – Jose was a superstar back in the 80s and early 90s, no question about it. Also, when we're talking about Giants and A's, you got to talk to Kevin Mitchell. What a great slugger he was as he was a World Series champion with the Mets in 1986. He was the National League MVP in 1989. I mean, he was just a monster back in the day and spent his last year in baseball with the Oakland Athletics. Here's the slugger, Kevin Mitchell. Kevin Mitchell is with us now. Kevin, Chris Townsend with the Oakland Athletics, thank you so much for taking the time today. We really appreciate it. Oh, you guys are welcome. You know, I think it's so cool that we're honoring both 1989 teams. Obviously, you're San Francisco Giants. We're going to be doing it for the Oakland Athletics because I really feel like those teams never really got their due, and a lot had to do with the earthquake. The earthquake, but how much fun is it going to be getting back together with all your guys and celebrating that terrific team? Well, I tell you what, man, it's it, it's a great enjoyment that that uh, San Francisco Giants put that on, man. I tell you, it's a beautiful thing to see all the guys come back and uh, just. Uh, I'm telling you, it was a red carpet day for us that, that the last few couple of days. And that year for you, obviously uh, winning a World Series with the Mets, but then you come over to the Giants. What was it about that year, your MVP year, that you just cl- you just clicked and you had a monster season? 
Well, I'll tell you what, everything worked out fine. Everything went well. I, it was Everything was perfect for me, and uh, I didn't feel like anything can go wrong. But the only thing that went wrong was the earthquake, and we didn't lose the uh, World Series to the Oakland A's. What did you think about when you guys were getting ready to play the A's, knowing that they had so much firepower? <laughs> yeah, I talk about that now, man. You know, I think it was a little intimidation involved in that, but you know, they had them Bash brothers over there, and then they had both Hendersons and um, uh, Dave Parker. Uh, I tell you, they had a dynamic team over there, man. They had some great pitching, you know, and uh, I, I really think if we would, if that earthquake wouldn't have hit, we would, we, I think we had a chance because we were there, and we had a good chemistry with our team, and we had a good nucleus. So we, we, we had a we had a good idea, a good plan that what was gonna happen. I think when the earthquake hit, it ruined our whole plans for us. Uh, and I and I think about the guy in that lineup with you where you guys are so successful, Will Clark, Will the Thrill, and they're gonna retire his number. Talk about what it was like hitting with Will Clark in that lineup. Well, I'll tell you what, I go to war with Will, you know, and uh he's uh he was a he's a great teammate, he's a good friend of mine now. So you know, I got a lot of respect for him, and I, I'm so proud of him. I'm happy for what's going on for him. They're going to retire his number, and I tell you, it's a great thing. So, yeah, and, and and speaking about the earthquake, you know, it's like there was so much devastation in Northern California. How tough was it to kind of get back into World Series mode after it happened? I think it was very tough for a lot of our players. I mean, even on both sides. Uh, um, I mean, it's, it was something drastic that really happened. I think I, I don't think the city can ever get over that, you know. But I think baseball kind of helped out a lot when we was able to continue to play the World Series. And uh, I, it was just thankful that both sides was in this World, World Series that, at that time. Man, one of the teams was going to win, and it, and they came out victory on us. And uh, it showed that that they was the most uh, they was the most they was the better team. Yeah, but both both of you guys had had fantastic years. What what is it like when you get around these guys? It's it's been a long time, but what is it like when you come together? Oh man, I tell you, uh, you know, a lot of us ain't seen each other. Hopefully, a lot of us can walk on the field again. You know, so <laughs> but uh, you know, it's yeah, it's going to be a great thing. So uh, it's going to be a blessing that we are. Uh, that we can go out there and walk again and be in front of the crowd like that. I tell you, if it wasn't for San Francisco and the city of Oakland, I don't think the players can can even be the players that they ever was. I think the city of uh, Oakland and the city of San Francisco, you got the greatest fans in baseball. And how about, let's talk about one of your old franchises, and you won a World Series with the New York Mets, and all of a sudden the Mets were – they were dysfunctional, and they got to get rid of the manager, and the GM doesn't know what he's doing. And then the Mets have gotten hot, and right now they're like the hottest team in baseball, and the Mets are back in it. Have you been following the Mets and what they're doing in 2019? Yeah, I've been following. You know, I follow baseball a lot, you know, and I watch. I try to watch all the games, especially all the teams that I played with. But uh, I tell you, I, I always thought they had a great team over there. They just had to put it together. They got great pitching. You know, I, even when they come to San Diego, I watch them a lot. So, but it's just they, they just had to put it together, and it seems like they're putting it together right now. So, yeah, and and I think about your guys's group. I mean, you talk about a dynamic group in 1986. You guys had a ton of characters on that team. 
Well, if you can't have fun, you're not going to win. So that's the main thing. You got to have fun before you step between the white lines. So uh, I had a lot of fun with that New York Mets team, and I learned a lot from a lot of players over there, especially Gary Carter, Keith Fernandez. You know, uh, may may Carter rest in peace. But you know, it was just uh, like I said, I was a young kid then, and uh, and they taught me a lot about the game. So uh, I, I tip my hat to them. Well, I, I've always been a big fan of yours. I'm also from San Diego, and you went to Lincoln. I graduated from Crawford, so I always followed your career and what a career it was, and we'll see you up here when you're being honored. And thank you so much for the time, and be well. Well, I didn't go to Lincoln. I went to Claremont. You went to Claremont? <laughs> I, I thought you went to Lincoln. No, my brothers and them did. I, think I You know, I was on the, the busing program. I went to Claremont. Oh, you were? You, were, uh, you know, they were Ridgemont High the, you, you, where they, you, with the movie. Yeah, you were with all the surfers. Yeah, yeah, I was I was a surfer. You know, I had long hair. I was a surfer. <laughs> no, I was a surfer. <laughs> yeah, if, if if people don't know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, one of the great movies, was based off Claremont High, where you went to school. I didn't know you went to Claremont. Yes, I went to Claremont with uh, Bobby Garrett. Oh, okay, yeah, Bobby Garrett, former uh, Oakland Athletics manager. Yes, sir, I did. Well, cool stuff, Kevin. Thank you so much, and be well. All right, you guys enjoy it. Thanks a lot, man. Have a good one. The Boogie Bear. Boy, could he hit, man. He could flat out swing it. And then we caught up with a guy who starred for both the Oakland Athletics and the San Francisco Giants. And it's great having him on again. We caught up with him earlier in the year when he was out here in Oakland. But now Barry Zito's coming out with a book three-time All-Star, a World Series champion in 2012, and the American League Cy Young Award winner in 2002, and led the American League in wins in 2002. We always love talking to Barry Zito because he's just one heck of a guy. Here is Barry Zito when we had him on Ace Cast Live. He's one of the greatest left-handed pitchers in Oakland A's history. He was a Cy Young Award winner. He's a World Series champion, a three-time All-Star, a musician, and also now an author. Barry Zito joins us here on A's Cast Live. How you doing, Barry? I'm doing great. How are you? We're, we're doing fantastic. The ball club's playing well. And uh, let's talk about this new book, Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame, coming out September 17th, 2019. Yes, sir. That is, that is it, man. It's uh. It's just been a lot of fun to write. It's been about two year process, but um, I think the key to that is really just saying saying what I wanted to hear. You know, going into the big leagues, if I read something like that, I probably would have had a lot less head games with myself and probably put a lot less pressure on myself. And um, so it's it's in a lot of ways, it's a letter to my younger self and a, almost like a warning, firing a warning shot here. <laughs> this isn't uh, all cracked up to be, man. It's it can be a little miserable out here sometimes in the world. So. You know, I, I think of when you put a book out, it's like showing your soul, and it's a lot of work. Just talk about everything you've done to, to, to make this thing happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it's just been a lot of, it's been a lot of, like, how do I tell this story, you know? And at the end of the day, I mean, we hear these interviews with players, you know, whether they're on a hot streak or a cold streak, and, you know, they kind of give the standard answer, right? And the media latches on to the guys that are a little more honest. But to be truthful, you're, you're not always getting the full story about what's going on inside of a guy's head. And, 
you know, he could be terrified to go out there on the mound or get up to the plate, but he's not going to tell anybody that. And so, you know, this book is a very vulnerable kind of open way of saying, this is what was really going on in my head and, and, you know, in other teammates of mine's heads when things weren't really going their way and trying to explain a little bit of, you know, what's behind that when you're, you know, you're just trying to go out there and perform and you can end up trying to do things to make the fans happy and really to, to uh, gain self-worth out there by performing. And that's really the wrong approach to have, you know, when playing a sport that's crazy like baseball. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, a journey of how I went from putting my identity, uh, into my baseball performance to finding it somewhere else. Yeah. And it's a game of failure and some guys, you know, you're, you are going to struggle. I mean, every, I mean, the other guys get paid too, as we like to say, and, and they're going to have their time against you. And, and I, and I think when like yesterday we saw Chris Bassett who threw a very good game, but after the game, it was so critical of himself saying it was the best fastball he had, but he used the term, the rest of my stuff was just crap. So, you know, when you look that guy in the mirror, sometimes it's tough, Barry, when, you know, when you're struggling and, and you really have to diagnose your own stuff, it's not easy. Yeah, no, it's really true. I mean, and I think having a perspective going in to anything that we're trying to do in life, we, you know, we're trying to be successful and, you know, we're all trying to make a living and do these things, but to have perspective that, you know, there's certain things that I can control and there's certain things I can't. And I think, you know, I've read a statistic once that the biggest reason that people are unhappy is because they're placing their happiness on all these factors that are out of their own control. And, you know, that was me for sure. I was, you know, if I took a, took a win that day, uh, then I was walking on, you know, clouds and felt like I was the greatest dude on the planet. And, you know, if I gave up eight earned in three innings, I wouldn't even leave my apartment, you know? And so you, you can't live like that. And so, um, a lot of it has to do with us really trying to control things we can't. How much have you learned in your life from the time when you really were struggling in baseball? How much, how much has that helped you and how much have you learned from it? I mean, that's been my greatest teacher. Absolutely. Um, you know, the struggle is always when we learn, right? We don't really learn much in good times. We just kind of fail, you know, it's like the roller coasters clickety clacking it up in the, up to the top there. And I think that's this pain and struggle and we're just trying to get up the hill. And then, you know, when times are good, man, we're just flying down that thing and enjoying the wind in our face, having a great time. But for me, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful of the struggles, even though they were so hard because I really, found out who I was, you know, outside of baseball and have taken that, you know, that mindset and really that, that truth, I think just into the rest of my life and I'm just having a blast now. I'm, I feel so much more peaceful inside, which is a huge win. And what was the feeling like too, when you made your big comeback in 2012 and you pitched so well for the giants in the playoffs and the NLCS and the world series, you got back to the top of that mountain. What was that like for you to get back there? You know, it's funny because if you would have asked me the first five years of my Giants contract, you know, hey, what would you give to go be a, you know, playoff kind of hero, World Series, you know, game one, you know, get the win, all that stuff. I was like, oh, man, I would give you both both arms and both legs. You know, it's that's all I wanted to do was vindicate myself in the eyes of Giants fans and, and really deliver what I was paid to deliver. Um, but the the irony is that, once I realized that, you know, after getting left off the roster in 2010, that I wasn't going to get where I had to go 
you know, with that mindset of it's all about me and, you know, I'm going to get redemption no matter what. I mean, I just gave up all attachment to success and really just tried to start having a great time and throw the ball as good as I could. And really, if I was going to suck out there, okay, man, so be it. <laughs> and so that mindset is actually what brought me the success in 2012. And uh, I actually can't really even take credit for it, man, because I feel like I didn't do much. I just did the best I could. And um, so I didn't really bask in the redemption that I think people were hoping I would. <laughs> well, it, 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 look at your career. And, and I think about at the height of your powers, like in 2002, when you were so dominant, what is it like to be on that mound and to dominate like that? And you also, you know, you, Hudson Mulder, Zito, the three of you were all rolling at the same time. That just had to be a blast. Yeah, no, it was, it was a blast. And I think, you know, they have this, uh, this thing they talk about with the, the arc of, you know, the master or mastery. And they talk about, you know, at the beginning of your career, you're unconsciously competent, right? You're just a stud. You don't know why. And I think that's what I was in Oakland. We didn't really know what we were doing. We were just good. And then, you know, the next, the next stage of that is conscious incompetence, which is, we know what that is. And then the final stage of mastery is conscious competence. So um, for me, I can't really, I don't know what was going on in Oakland those early years, man. I was just having a great time. And for some reason, you know, <laughs> these guys were striking out. Yeah, no doubt about it. And the three of you guys were just so dominant and you had so many great players around you with MVPs and Cy Young Awards. It was just such a good time in A's baseball. Yeah. You know, you know when, when, when I think about what's the future of the game, I really think it's neuroscience. I think it's really working on players, their mentality, their brains. And I think you can speak to that because you can show people curveballs and spin rates and all this kind of stuff. But really, the, the most important muscle is the one in between your ears. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's and when I started to realize that, I think, you know, halfway through my career, I would look around at the guys that, you know, placed all of their self-worth right and their identity in the game. And those are the guys that were so miserable and that were, you know, taking different substances and, you know, drinking at night and trying to deal with, right. The, the roller coaster emotionally. And then there was just those few guys that were so incredible. They had such perspective and they knew that they were kind of more than the game of baseball. And, uh, and those are the guys I think that you see, you know, riding out these great careers because, you know, they're actually keeping their sanity through most of it. And they treat the game like it should be treated. It's a game. Go have fun. Do your best. End of story. And, uh, you know, but there are many guys, myself included, that could not approach it that way. It was just too intense, man. So I, I'm, uh, I'm assuming you probably talk about this in the book, but if Barry Zito could go back now to a younger Barry Zito where you had multiple you know, whether it's the start of your career, middle of your career, end of your career, what kind of advice would Barry Zito go back and give give to you back then? Oh, man, uh, that's a great question. I think I would because I didn't have a great foundation for what was important and what wasn't. I, I kind of was raised being taught that, you know, baseball is the end all be all. If I if I'm a great champion in baseball, then life is perfect. So. I would tell myself, Hey, you're not that special. <laughs> you're not that important. Uh, no matter if you have success and you think everyone's talking about you and thinking about you before they go to sleep at night, they're actually not. 
And uh, so just go have fun and enjoy it. And I mean, that's, that's something I, if you told me that I would have been like, get out of here, man, come on. <laughs> no, nah, this is all about me. You know, um, not in a, not in a kind of an arrogant way, but just about what I was raised believing, you know? So I would, I would give myself a little perspective, maybe a little kick in the butt there. How hard is it to separate the money when, when you're performing? How hard is it just to, as you said, go out and have fun and not think about the money? Um, it is pretty hard. I mean, you know, especially when you have, you know, huge newspapers and talk show people and they're all talking about you and, you know, you're sitting there going, man, I just got paid an amount of money that I couldn't even fathom being attached to my name uh, in my whole life, you know? And so all I want to do is go out there and pitch well and show these people that I'm worth the money. And so the intention is good, right? I mean, good intentions lead the way to hell, right? And so for me, I just wanted to perform well to, to say, Hey guys, I I'm, I'm trying, I want to do this, but you can't do that. Cause you start to try to be some kind of superhuman and you were never meant to do that. You were just meant to go through that ball the best you could. And, uh, you know, like I said, that wasn't something I could master was that, that psychological approach. The book is called Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. It's going to be out September 17th, 2019. You can also check out BarryZitoMusic.com. That's BarryZitoMusic.com. Before we let you go, we know you got other interviews to do. How is music coming along and your writing going? Oh, music's great, man. I'm having such a good time been setting up a little studio and working on all that kind of stuff and going to get back to writing songs here soon after all this book stuff settles down. So I'm just, again, just so grateful to be having something to sink my teeth into, man. Barry, you're the best. Uh, and, and congratulations on the book. Good luck with it. And when it comes out, let's have you on again and promote it again. That sounds great, buddy. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I can't wait for that book. And we told Barry, you know, next, you know, when the book finally comes out, we want to have you on again. Anything we can do to help promote, whether it's his music or anything he's doing as an entrepreneur, we're always going to help out Barry Zito. He's always going to be a part of the A's family, no question about it. A lot of respect for my next guest here. Dave Fleming, Stanford guy, once was the voice of the Stanford Cardinal. He's been with the Giants for years. You also see him doing football and basketball on ESPN. He's one of the top broadcasters in the country and, of course, here in the Bay Area. And we caught up with Dave Fleming before the A's took on the San Francisco Giants in interleague play. Dave, this is Chris Townsend. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Hey, Chris. Sorry, my phone was on silent. I was, uh, it was sitting right next to me, and I just didn't pick it up. Sorry. No, no worries. No worries. Welcome to A's Cast Live. This is uh, something that's pretty new with baseball, but I think in time every single team is going to be doing this. Well, cool. I'm glad to be with you. So I was just talking about football and working the Raider game on Saturday. I'm sure you got a full football schedule coming up with ESPN. I've got a schedule that starts in, uh, well, I guess two weeks from uh, this Friday. So, uh, yeah, we're getting close, real close. So going to be honoring the 1989 San Francisco Giants, and, of course, we're going to be honoring the 1989 Oakland Athletics who won the World Series. You know, because of the earthquake, this World Series, you know, is kind of forgotten. I'm really happy, how about you, that, that we're finally honoring these two teams that really had terrific players on it. Well, they're two teams that were very important to their franchises, both of them. Uh, and even though the A's ended up winning uh, – 
you know, the Giants had been a franchise that had been struggling for a long time. And it was that group of players. It started in 86 and 87, but it sort of culminated in 89 that shepherded in the whole era of Giants baseball that continues to this day, got the ballpark built and whatnot. So, right. I mean, those were two really important teams in the history of Bay Area baseball. And they are defined in a way by just the, the, the fact that the earthquake happened before game three. And that isn't fair. And uh, I think for Giants at A's fans, uh, they appreciate those guys. And so probably they didn't need all this, but those players are still worth celebrating and remembering. No doubt about it. And I, I think about how we've lost some of the players from those teams, and I'm just happy we're finally going to honor them. And, and I also think it's very tough when organizations just say, we're only going to retire the numbers of Hall of Famers because not every guy is a Hall of Famer, but some guys are worth retiring because they were great players. And I think Will Clark is one of those guys. And, you know, having watched him in college, in the College World Series and following his career, I'm really happy for Will. He's been very generous generous to us with his time. Just how great is that going to be for Giants fans, for Will the thrill to have his number retired? Well, he's a beloved player, and it is great. And I, I'm with you. I mean, that is a high standard. Now, when you have franchises like the Giants and the A's, who have so many Hall of Famers, so many great players, uh, you know, it is difficult because at some point you got to draw a line. There has to be a distinction. So when you have the histories that these two franchises have, the Hall of Fame bar is in a lot of ways kind of the easiest one to, to use. But but will. And, you know, I mean, I mean, of the modern era, you could throw Tim Lincecum in there. I think a guy who just meant more than just the on-field performance. You know, that to me is, is it's not just about performance on the field. It's also about meaning to the franchise, meaning to the fans. And Will easily, easily clears that bar. And, I, you know, I, I frankly, I think Will Clark has a pretty darn good case to actually be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, and maybe that'll never happen. Although, you know, some of the recent inductees, I think Will has every bit as good an argument as some of the players that have been put in the Hall of Fame here recently. Uh, and who knows, maybe that'll get revisited at some point. I think that would be pretty cool for him. He quit young. Uh, you know, he wanted to be at home with his son, and his son is just thriving and doing great. And I think Will doesn't regret for one second that decision. Uh, but uh, it may have cost him a better chance to be in there because, you look at his career numbers, they are super, super impressive. And maybe he's just missing, you know, some some compilation numbers, just some bulk hits and home runs, and he would have been in. Yeah, and the guy that was uh, a part of that team was the MVP. He was Kevin Mitchell. He's going to be joining us coming up here at 630. He was obviously also a big part of it. Let's talk about the current Giants right now at 59 and 60. We thought they were going to be big sellers at the deadline. They weren't. They're letting this team have a shot. Where do you think they really are three and a half games back with the wild card? Do you really think they're contenders? Well, I think they I think the players earned a chance to play it out. And I think that's how the Giants saw it. When they played as well as they did in July, I think that it was a it was a strong statement from those players to everybody in the franchise, hey, we want a chance to see what happens. And they, they do have a shot. I mean the the schedule is hard. The Giants, you know, road games from here till the end of the year are Arizona and Oakland and Atlanta and Boston and Chicago and St. Louis and L.A. I mean, it is a hard, hard away schedule for the Giants from now until the end of the year. That makes it tough. 
But I think they have a chance. I mean, nobody in the National League has, has looked invincible to me. Every one of those teams that they're competing against has flaws. And so, I, I, you know, I mean, is it a long shot? It's probably a long shot just based on where they sit with the number of teams they're competing against. But I'm glad they've let this group at least try to play it out. Are you shocked L.A. didn't do anything major for their bullpen? Uh, I wasn't shocked, but I was surprised. And I think part of it is it's not just on the Dodgers. It's part of the reason why the Giants didn't sell any of their pieces. I mean, I think in both directions, there is an unrealistic uh, expectation about what players are worth and what prospects are worth. And, you know, I don't think the Giants, if the Giants have been blown away by an offer for Madison Bumgarner, I think they probably would have made the move or at least would have really strongly considered making the move. Uh, And the Dodgers, I think, are one of those teams where they had to blow somebody away and they weren't willing were not willing at all to give up one of the, you know, four or five best young players. It's hard to argue with their strategy. I mean, they've held on to all these guys who have come up and uh, been extremely successful for them. Uh, It's really hard to argue with that logic. Hey, yeah, where would we be without, uh, Will Smith, the catcher now, and Cody Bellinger and Corey Seager and Alex Verdugo and all the names that we heard over the last five years in those trade rumors. So I get where teams are coming from when they protect their young talent, when they think that, that young talent is really special. Uh, but their weakness, you know, if that comes back to haunt them, they are going to have regrets. They are because, uh, you know, it's been their weakness now for a couple of years and they had a chance to address it. One player, they would have gotten the best guy on the market and they weren't willing to give him up. So when I look at Mass and Bumgarner, it's just like everything has changed, and I still think he's more valuable to the Giants than to anybody else. Do you see him staying with the Giants long term? I don't know. I think at this point he's going to explore free agency. I mean, I don't see him now at this point signing a deal that would preempt him going out there in the market and seeing what's out there. And I – I don't blame any player ever for doing that. And that's the right of these guys who uh, earn the time and uh, get to free agency. That's their right to go do that. Yeah, I don't know what the offer is going to be like. You might be right that he's more valuable to the Giants, but I think his value is being underestimated by the game at large. Number one, I think the reason why I would be interested in Bumgarner as a trade piece or would have been these last few weeks if I were a contending team is uh, there is value to me in a guy who is built like he is. I mean, come October, it's going to be interesting to see whether it's in the on the American League side with some of the Twins pitchers who maybe are getting pushed or even some of those Cleveland pitchers like Shane Bieber who are getting pushed who haven't uh, had that long full season or seasons before. Or on the National League side, maybe it's the Braves with Soroka or Bueller and the Dodgers and some of their young guys or whatever. Bumgarner in October is the same as Bumgarner in July. He doesn't run out of gas. He's built to be the same guy. To me, there's a lot of value in that. And I think there is increasing awareness that this obsession with bullpen and and using the bullpen during the regular season is hurting teams. And, and I'm not saying I don't understand the reasons why teams do it, but these bullpens are getting beat up. And this weekend was a great demonstration. The Giants got two long starts from their starters, Bumgarner and Samarja. And then last night on Sunday, they were able to go through the whole bullpen and win a game that they would not have won otherwise without those starters pitching deep into games. And 
So maybe come playoff time, teams are going to shift back into that bullpen mode, but there's huge value in a guy who will take the ball and give you innings and protect some of those other pitchers, and that's what he gives you. Amen. I mean, there's this delicate balance of how far you want your starter to go, how much bullpen, and the minute your starters stop going deep, it just destroys your bullpen. And what's the first thing the front office says? Well, we got to get our pitchers to start pitching more, our starters pitching more innings. So it's these bullpens pitching more innings than ever before for 162 games. It gets to be pretty rough. I totally agree, and I think we're seeing that. We're, there is a reason why so many teams in baseball are having a hard time pitching out of their bullpen. There is a reason, and that reason is is that they're asking too much of those guys too consistently, and it works in the short term, and you do pay a price in the long term. I'm not saying I don't understand the math. I do. A starter the third time through, the fourth time through, ask any hitter. They believe that that is easier when you've seen a guy a couple times that day. There is an advantage for the hitter at that point. But sometimes over 162, over the long haul of the year, you've got to be willing to not go just by the percentages and play the long game. And I think you know, there's been nobody in baseball who's been better at that than Bruce Bochy. It's one of his underrated skills as a manager. He will leave guys in. Maybe he gets burned every once in a while. Maybe you can point to those percentages every once in a while and say, ah, see, he should have made the move earlier. But over the long haul of the season, he protects his pitchers and his arms are fresh at the end of the year, and there's a lot to be said for that. Let's end on this. Obviously, we all love baseball, but when it comes to football as a broadcaster, what is it like when you're going to do a game, two heated rivals, there's 100,000 people in the stands. What is that like for you? Well, it is different. And now, playoff baseball, big baseball, is a similar feeling where every pitch, every moment, the crowd's on edge. But college football is like that. A big game, every single snap, the fans are so into it. And it's why I really love, and and you get that in the NFL and the big games too, but it is why I love the, the college game because the atmospheres and the fan bases are just so passionate. They're so into it. They care so much. Uh, for me, it, you know, it just it makes it a lot easier to call the game. You don't have to provide any sort of fake energy or enthusiasm. The game provides that. You let the big moments speak for themselves, but it's the, they're the most fun things to do. They are, and uh, it's why I look forward to college football every fall. Dave, great stuff. We appreciate it. We'll see you tomorrow night. Anytime, Chris. See you soon. So I want to thank Jose Canseco, Kevin Mitchell, Barry Zito, and Dave Fleming for coming on A's Cast Live. And we hope everybody continues to enjoy A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. And always come see us in the ballpark, in the treehouse, always there an hour before first pitch. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.